Turn with me to uh, Psalm 19. We've kind of, I've kind of worked myself into this little series. wasn't expecting to do this, but it's been fun anyway. Getting to study some of the key passages in the Bible about the Bible. In fact, uh, these are the verses that really drive me as a preacher and why I preach the way I preach and uh, why I'm so confident in uh, the Word of God and its authority, its sufficiency to do God's work His way in His time. And uh, Psalm 19 is one of those passages that has made a dramatic impact in my own heart and mind, in my philosophy of ministry, in my philosophy of preaching. And I've always wanted to preach it. And so, here I go. Psalm 19. And let's just look at verses 7 through 11. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Let's pray. God, your word is truly wonderful. Beyond anything we can even begin to comprehend, a lifetime is not enough to search every part of your word. It's, it's unfathomable. Its depths are too great for us to ever reach. And yet, this morning, we have an opportunity to bring our little cup, as it were, and for you to fill us up with your word, your wonderful word. And I pray that you would put on display the wonders of you through your word this morning as we look at this great text That, Lord, we would be convicted, we would be comforted, Lord, we would be most of all conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Help us to be the people you want us to be. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The following anonymous quotation about the Bible was found hanging on the wall in a preacher's study. It goes like this. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth and health to the soul and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its contents. I think that is an excellent description of the multifaceted ministry of the Word of God. And the Bible is by nature completely comprehensive. It contains everything that we need to know to live a life that is pleasing to God. In fact, I know you're familiar with Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. And uh, providentially, I think under the inspiration of the Spirit, it is the longest chapter in the Bible, but it's the longest chapter in the Bible on the Bible. 
The whole thing's about the Bible. And all 176 verses of Psalm 119 mention something about the Word of God. In fact, it was uh, composed in the form of an acrostic. And there's 22 sections in Psalm 119, each corresponding with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet from Alpha to Omega. And I think that's just the psalmist's simple way of saying that the Bible is comprehensive from A to Z. It's got everything. It covers all the bases. Well, here in an economy of words, in just five verses, David concisely described the all-encompassing character of God's Word. And like a master poet, he, he throws out descriptive title after descriptive title and adjective after adjective to somehow attempt to capture the wonder of the written revelation of God. This psalm is really two halves. It's verses 1 through 6. Talk about the general revelation of God through creation. Talks about the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of His hands. And day to day they pour forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. He's talking about how creation screams forth the glory of God, that there is a God who deserves glory, even though you can't hear any words. And so that's talking about general revelation, but then he moves on in verses 7 through 11 and talk about special revelation. And that is God speaking and revealing himself, not through creation, but through scripture. And I like the title in my Bible in Psalm 119, it just says, the works and the word of God. And I think those are the two greatest proofs that there is a God. It's creation and Scripture, His Word. C.S. Lewis, who was a master of literature himself, called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. John MacArthur, who was the first one that I heard ever preach a message on Psalm 19, which really uh, just made a lasting impression, an indelible mark in my own mind and my heart when I heard it. And not just once, but several times I've heard him preach this message. In fact, he's put it in his book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, which is a tremendous book. I know some of you are reading that right now. But he said this about Psalm 19, specifically verses 7 to 11. He said, it's the most monumental statement on the sufficiency of Scripture ever made in concise terms. He says it offers an unwavering testimony from God himself about the sufficiency of his word for every situation. He said the Holy Spirit gives a comprehensive catalog of the characteristics and benefits of Scripture. Very well said. And so here in verses 7 through 11, what David does is he strings together six statements describing the Scriptures That should stir us to respond the same way he did to God's word. And each of these six statements includes three elements. And you're going to see these as we go through them this morning. They they include a name for the word of God. They include a characteristic of the word of God. And then they include a benefit or an effect of the word of God. And so we're going to see six names and six characteristics and six benefits and effects of God's word. And together... They form a simple summary of what the Bible is and what the Bible does. And so let's look at these six statements together. Number one, the Bible is perfect and produces conversion. The Bible is perfect and produces conversion. Look at verse 7. David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That word law, as you know, is that general Hebrew word that was used to define Scripture. It's Torah. It means instruction or direction. It's, it's, it's a teaching word. And it's really the comprehensive term for all of God's revealed will. Whether it's creed, what we should believe, or, or character, who we should be, or conduct, what we should do. That's all encompassed in the word law. And so he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's whole, it's complete, it's sufficient. It completely covers every aspect of life. It's not deficient in any way. It is everything we need, as I said earlier, to live a godly life. 2 Peter 1.3 If something is necessary for life, where is it going to be? 
in the Bible. Consequently, the Bible doesn't need to be changed or supplemented or integrated with anything else. It's totally sufficient in and of itself. Amen? I think that's why the Bible is so clear. Why we're forbidden to ever add anything to the Bible or take anything away from the Bible or alter it in any way. And we see this starting in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. God told Abraham, or excuse me, God told Moses here, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. He says a similar thing in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Telling Moses, hey, just tell them exactly what I told you. Don't add to it and don't take anything out. Don't leave anything out. Just tell them what I told you to say. Simple as that. And just worry about obeying that. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs 30 verse 6. Says this. Do not add to his words lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. In other words, don't add to God's word or you're, you're going to prove yourself to be a liar. And then probably the most familiar uh, passage, in fact, this is interesting, in Revelation chapter 22, when it's all said and done, okay, after the whole uh, the scripture is, has been revealed by God and, and he's wrapping up his revelation, if you will, in, in Revelation chapter 22, the last thing he says, kind of like a, almost a P.S., He says this in verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, which is obviously talking primarily about what? The book of Revelation, but I think this in principle it applies to the whole Bible. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. It's a pretty serious matter. It's an eternal matter. In fact, our eternal destiny is at stake in regards to how we trifle with God's Word. And so we need to be very careful in how we deal uh, with God's Word. Because the stakes are high and the consequences are eternal. I don't think there's, I think this speaks to that matter of the the visions and the revelations and the words from the Lord that are so popular today. Everybody's out talking about, well, I got a word from the Lord and I got this vision and this revelation. They're seeking and looking for something more from God. When the point is, we, need to, we got enough here. We don't need to be looking for anything else, do we? I mean, our focus should not be looking to hear more from God, but to focus on obeying what He already gave to us. Notice what it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's perfect. It doesn't need to be attitude. You can't, it doesn't need to be taken away, altered. It's perfect. Just the way it is. So just leave it alone. Or you'll mess it up. And he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That word for restore there is the word for convert or revive or to give new life. In other words, it, the Word of God, the law of the Lord, it's, it's so perfect. It, it totally transforms a person's soul. It has the power to completely change people from the inside out. We learned that in the last couple of weeks, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. How the Word of God is so sharp, it's able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit, right? And to discern what's really going on in our hearts, our thoughts, our motives, our intentions. And so no matter what your life is like, regardless of how bad your sins are, no matter how big your problems are, the Bible has the answers and the Bible has the solutions and the Bible is able to revive us and to renovate us and to rebuild our lives. MacArthur says in Our Sufficiency in Christ, which I'm going to quote from several times because he does such a super job with this passage. He said this, quote, Scripture is so powerful and comprehensive that it can convert or transform the entire person, changing someone into precisely the person God wants them to be. God's word is sufficient to restore through salvation even the most broken life. Aren't you thankful? It was the word of God that worked in your life to get you to the point where you are today. So number one, the Bible is perfect 
and produces conversion. Secondly, the Bible is trustworthy and provides instruction. The Bible is trustworthy and provides instruction. Notice what he says next in the second part of verse 7. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word testimony refers to an aspect of truth that's attested to by God and Himself. In other words, it's a divine witness. And Scripture serves as God's witness to us of who He is and of who we are and what He wants us to do and what He wants us to be. That's the word that was used to describe the Ten Commandments in Exodus 25, 21. It says, you shall put the, uh, put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. Talking about the Ten Commandments, putting them in, storing them in the ark. And he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The NIV says, trustworthy. Worthy of trust. Able to be trusted. Reliable. And the, and the scriptures, the Bible provides an unwavering, immovable foundation on which to build our lives and our eternal destinies. That's what theologians mean when they say that the Bible is, is a trustworthy standard of faith and practice. In other words, what they're saying is that the Bible is the trustworthy standard of what we should believe. That's faith and, and how to live. That's practice. Turn over to 2 Peter for a second. 2 Peter chapter 1. There's a fascinating passage here where Peter is recalling the experience he had on the Mount of Transfiguration when he actually saw, along with Peter, or along with James and John, the glory of Christ as if he peeled back his flesh and, and, and who he really was came out and they saw the glory of God. It's a magnificent experience. And he's talking about that in, in uh, verse 16. And notice he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't just come around and make this stuff up and say, oh, this is something. Uh, uh. No, he says, no, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw Jesus Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration in all of his glory. He says, for when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, justice and utterance, as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Isn't that what God said from heaven? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. In other words, we not only saw the glory of God in Christ, we also heard God speak and affirm that this was his Son. Pretty cool, huh? That's an experience to live off, live off of for a while, huh? But notice what he does in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Bible. Look at verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation or origination as we talked about before. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What is that a description of? The inspiration process, how we got the Word of God, right? How God inspired His Word through men. And so Peter's point here, he says, so we have the prophetic Word made more sure. He said, I'm telling you what. He said, I, I got to see Christ in all of his glory. I got to hear God speak from heaven. And guess what you have? You have something even more sure than that in this. Isn't that powerful? I mean, all of us would say, man, if I, if I was on transfiguration, man, I'd never have to worry about sin anymore. I'd, I'd just kind of be, you know, sanctification should take off. I'd be a great Christian, you know, I'd never struggle anymore. That would just be what I need, you know. And I would know for sure that all this Christianity stuff is real. and all. He says, you know what? I had that. And you have something that's even more convincing. And that is the very word of God. I think that's a little bit of what is involved here when David says that the testimony of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's the surest thing that God could ever give to us to base our lives on. I think of that story that Jesus told in Luke 
of the rich man and Lazarus, right? Remember that story? And they, and they both died, and, and, and the rich man went to hell, as it were, and, and Lazarus went to heaven, and the rich man said, hey, you know, send Lazarus to, to give me a, a, a cup of water. He says, sorry, you can't do that. He says, well, then at least send him back to, to earth to, to tell my brothers. I got five brothers who are going to end up in hell with me if he doesn't tell them that this Jesus thing is real, to repent. And Abraham says, you know what? They have what? Moses and the prophets. They've got the word of God. And if they don't listen to the word of God, they're not going to believe it if a, if a man rises from the dead and comes back and tells them. I mean, do you think about that? Think about it, man. If, well, if I just had somebody that died and he came back to life and he, and he said, yeah, I saw God. I saw Jesus Christ sitting at his right hand and, and heaven's real. And that would be the convinced. That would be the, the, the bottom line, right? That would convince you. That'd be enough. He says, no, not even if a person came back from the dead. Will that be a sure enough evidence that this whole Christianity thing is true? This is the surest evidence you're ever going to get right here. So the testimony of the Lord is sure. And it says, making wise the simple. That word simple comes from the word meaning open door. And the idea here is that a person doesn't know how or when to shut the door of their mind to false teaching. They're undiscerning. They're, they're gullible. They're ignorant by nature. We all are. And so the Bible helps us learn to discern truth from error so that we know what to receive and what to reject. And so the Bible gives us the wisdom we need to differentiate between what is harmful and what is helpful. The, the concept of wisdom in the, in the Hebrew culture was a little different than what, how we understand it today. And wisdom for the Hebrews really uh, centered around being skilled in the art of godly living. That's what it meant to be wise. That, that you really knew how to live your life. It wasn't just a bunch of uh, information about stuff. You know, wow, he's really wise. He's, he's, he knows a lot of stuff. That, that's not it at all. But it was the ability to apply what you did know, all that stuff you did know, to apply to the everyday issues and circumstances of life, like your relationships and your marriage and your finances and your kids and parenting and work and priorities and motives and how you treat people and how you re- resolve conflict. And, and, and the point is that every, every aspect of life is talked about in the Bible. I mean, you name the subject and it's there. I don't care what it is. Now, it may not be directly addressed, but there are principles that apply to every issue, every decision that we face in life. And so the scriptures provide us with the principles for successful living. And those who follow these principles will become wise. And the Bible talks about the first step of being wise. What is the beginning of wisdom? To fear the Lord, right? To get saved. And that's what 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about, that, that the scriptures made Timothy wise to what? Salvation. It's kind of our little theme verse for our children's ministry. That from little children we learn the scriptures which make us wise to salvation. We're training these little young ones in the scriptures. Why? Because we know that's going to be the thing God will use to lead them to salvation. Those who reject God's word prove themselves to be what? What's the opposite of being wise? A fool. And that's what Romans 1 talks about, right? That professing to be wise, they became Fools, and they exchange the truth of God for what? A lie. Paul talks about that too in 1 Corinthians, how he really humbles the wise through the preaching of the word. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 20. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So the word looks at us and calls us fools. But the Bible says, no, you're the fools. And we're the ones who are wise. Why? Why are we wise? Because the scripture has made us wise. Again, MacArthur says this, the word of God thus takes a simple mind with no discernment and makes it skilled in all the issues of life. Third statement, the Bible is right and produces jubilation. The Bible is right and produces jubilation. Look at verse 8. David says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That word precepts. By the way, where K. Arthur got her title, right? 
precepts ministry? Precepts, what is that talking about? Specific authoritative orders given to us by God. The NIV, I think, says statutes. But these are the detailed instructions concerning the practical matters of everyday life. And if you think about it from a Jewish perspective, I mean, God's word, the, the precepts that he gave them in the, in the wilderness at Mount Sinai was, was all about how to live their lives, how to eat, right? What to eat, what not to eat, what to wear, what not to wear, how to, how to keep yourself clean, how to purify yourself, how to worship, how to, I mean, it was just everything in life. And so he says, the precepts of the Lord are what? Right. Now, the idea here is not correct. In other words, they're correct as opposed to wrong. What is wrong? It's talking about, that word right talks about what is straight as opposed to crooked. Okay? So, so the precepts of the Lord are straight. In other words, they're, they're the, 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 the idea here that's linked with it is the idea of righteousness. That, that the straight and narrow path of righteousness on which we're supposed to walk. That's what the, that's what the precepts of the Lord are. Kind of lays out for us the path. The right path. So there's no, no need to be like the majority of people in this world who lack direction, who lack purpose in their lives. Do you know people like that? You used to be one of them, didn't you? But now that the Word of God has given you direction, it's given you purpose. And what does that result in? What does that produce in our hearts? Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Living a righteous life Walking on that path that God has laid out for us in His Word causes us great joy and happiness. And we experience joy and blessing and, 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 and happiness. Luke eleven twenty eight is a great verse. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. You know, that's, that's good for us because this is, you know, we're blessed not just because we came to church today and listened to a sermon. We're blessed if we come to church today, listen to the sermon, then go do it, right? That's when we're truly blessed. That's when we truly experience the joy and happiness and blessing in life. You know, most people in the world don't realize that it's possible to live a happy life without sin. They don't understand that. That you can be happy without sex outside of marriage. You can be happy without drugs and without alcohol and without hoarding a bunch of material stuff. And so the Bible helps us to avoid all these paths, these different paths that people run down in life trying to find happiness, and they never find it. We know that the psalmist, all throughout the Psalms, shows us the way to true joy and happiness in life. He always went where to find it. If he was depressed, if he was bummed out, he was discouraged or despondent, where would he go? He would go to Scripture to help and, and, and give him hope whenever he was discouraged. And so God's Word helped him regain the proper perspective and, and consequently, consequently give him the joy back that he was missing. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, Jeremiah, who was known as what kind of prophet? The weeping prophet, right? He had a very sad ministry, uh, uh, prophesying judgment on the nation of Israel. And yet, this is, was his consolation. The weeping prophet, Jeremiah 15, 16, says, Thy words were found, and I ate them, and, they were, and, and, and thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. In other words, Jeremiah said, Yeah, the, 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 the ministry I had was not very encouraging, but I found great encouragement and joy in your word itself. And so the Bible is right and produces jubilation. Number four, the Bible is pure and provides direction. The Bible is pure and provides direction. Look at the second part of verse eight. It says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord. God gives us commands because he loves us. He, he tells us what to do and what not to do because he loves us. You can relate to this if you're a parent, right? You tell your kids, do this or don't do this, right? Why? Because you're just a mean ogre and you're a, you're a killjoy and you don't want them to have any fun. That's why you tell them, you know what? When you go out to the edge of the street, I want you to look both ways. And make sure you look both ways. Why are we doing that? Because we want to destroy their fun? No, we love them and we want to keep them alive, right? We want to keep them getting run over. And so we, we give commands, and tell them what to do and what not to do because we love them. And it's the same with God. And in the same way a little kid 
how they respond to their parents' commands will really determine their life, right? Uh, how long they live, some of them. And the same way how we respond to God's commands is really a matter of life and death. And I think this is a good place to remind us that, that you know what? God's word by nature is non-optional. The Bible is not just a book of suggestions or good ideas. Oh, by the way, here's some principles that will help make your life better. If you choose to use them, it really doesn't matter. No, God's word is authoritative. It's binding. It's given in the form of, of a command. Do this or don't do this. And it says that the commandment of the Lord is what? Pure. The NIV, I like the way it says it. It's radiant. In other words, it gives off light, making it possible to see clearly where we're going and it keeps us from stumbling over things in the dark. We all know Psalm 119, 105. What does it say? Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the idea here is that, it, that the word lights up our lives, it guides us, and it purges the darkness from our lives so we can see clearly without distortion. And it provides clarity when things are dark and things are confusing and, and, and when things appear blurry. At first, we look into the word and, and things come into clear focus. And so the Bible is pure and it provides direction. Number five, the Bible is clean. And it produces expectation. The Bible is clean and it produces expectation. First part of verse 9, it says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's interesting that, that again, David is just drawing different adjectives out and different synonyms, really, for the Word of God. And what does he liken the Word of God to? What does he call it here? The fear of the Lord. Interesting title for the Word of God, isn't it? And I think what the point there is that that, that describes the effect that the, the Scripture should have on us. Remember we talked about in Isaiah 66, verse 2, that to this one I will look to him who is humble and who trembles at my word, right? And so the Word of God should cause us to have a reverential awe and respect for God. And, and that's the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is to put the fear of God in us. Deuteronomy 4, verse 10. Listen to what God said to Moses. He said, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth. That was the whole point of God giving Moses the law was so that the people, when they heard his word, they would learn to fear him all the days that they lived on the earth. So the fear of the Lord is clean. It's, it's without deficiency. It's without error. It's without fault. It's without blemish. It's, 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 again, perfect. It's without sin. It's without evil. It's without corruption. It's undefiled. Psalm 12, verse 6, says that the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Not just refined one time, but refined seven times. Which is, again, the number of what? Perfection, right? So this thing has gone through the fire over and over and over again. So there is all the impurities are out of it. There's no impurities in it at all. And that's why I think he says that it's enduring forever. Because pure things don't decay. They last forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, what? Stands forever. Matthew 5, 18. Jesus said, not a jot or tittle, the smallest little uh, punctuation mark in the Bible will not pass away until all of it is completed. He said something similar in Matthew chapter 24. Verse 35. He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 1 Peter 1, 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding, what? Word of God. See, this stands in stark contrast to the world's kind of truth. 
The world's kind of truth is what? What do they love saying about it? It's relative, right? All truth is relative. And therefore it changes from one person's perception to another person's perception and from one generation to the next generation. What's true for you might not be true for me and what's true for me might not be true for the people next year or next generation. And yet the truth of the Bible is absolute. It's unchanging. Why? Because its source is God who never changes. And so the truth of God doesn't change with the times. It's eternally relevant for every person in every generation. It never gets outdated. It never needs to be updated or edited. Like God, it has always been and will always be. It grieves me when I hear preachers today who talk about having to change the way they preach in order to make the Word of God relevant. You don't make the Word of God relevant. It is relevant. You just got to get out of its way. It's like what Spurgeon said. You don't have to defend a lion. You just let it out of its cage. I mean, you can sit there all you want at the cage and go, what? That tiger doesn't really look that relevant. Okay, well, let me open the cage and let's see how relevant you think it is. As you're going, wah, running away from it, right? The, the Word of God is relevant. You don't make it relevant. But by packaging it in all these tricky, slick ways and drama and video and all those kind of ways that the, oftentimes is, is undermines preaching, what you're doing is you're, you're um, causing the Word of God to be impotent. You're taking away its power. You're bringing it down to our level, if you will, instead of just unleashing it the way God wrote it. Somebody passed on a quote to me from Howard Hendricks. You guys know Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary, one of the famous favorite professors up there. He said this, there are only two things that God is going to take off the planet. One is his word and the other is people. He says, what a secret, what a clue to how to invest your life. Spend your life building his word into the life of people. He said, this is the only thing that's going to outlast you. These are the things that will give you a legacy that will last. Isn't that good? You want to know what's going to last long after you're dead and gone? Is the, the word of God that you poured into someone else's life. The last statement. Number six. The Bible is true and produces consecration. The Bible is true and produces consecration. Notice verse 9. He says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The word judgments there is the word for verdicts. The decisions of a judge. And and just talking about the divine evaluation, they they, they divinely evaluate our thoughts and our actions, right? Hebrews 4.12, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so the Bible is God's standard for judging the life and eternal destiny of every person. It's the Word of God. It's His judgment. And it says that His judgments are true. Isn't that encouraging and refreshing in a world full of lies? Do you realize the, 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 the world is lying to us every day? Every commercial we watch, every, every radio station we listen to, every movie we go watch, everything around us, magazine we read, newspapers, lawyers, politicians. Sorry, lawyers, if you're here. Uh, you know, that's just a general uh, stereotype. But, but we joke about that. But, you know, who's telling the truth? You, you can't really depend on anyone, it seems, these days to tell you the truth. <laughs> And yet God's word is the sole source of truth. And we can depend on the Bible to help us come to know the truth about everything that matters in life. And he says it's righteous altogether. His word is righteous altogether. In other words, the Bible produces righteousness in those who embrace its truth. And it's designed to, to cause us to live a holy and righteous life. As put it simply, to live right. To live right in a wrong world. Now, I just want you to look back over those verses, 7 to 9. Just, just look at some of the words. You may have some underlined or highlighted. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, enduring forever, fear, judgment. What do all these words have in common? 
Think about that for a second. I think all these words that are used to describe God's word also describe who? God. And so God's word is simply a reflection of the character of God. It's as simple as that. And so our view of God's word reflects our view of God, and our view of God reflects our view of God's word. And so if we have a high view of God, then it naturally follows we're going to have, have a high view of what? His word. And if we have a high view of God's word, what naturally follows, we're going to have a high view of who? God. They go together. They're inseparable. Now let's see how David responds to this wonderful word that he just got done describing in such eloquent terms. Verses 10 and 11, he says, They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. There's three responses here to God's word in David's heart. Number one, he treasured it. He treasured it. Showing us that God's word is profitable for our lives. And he extolled the value of scripture by comparing it to what? To gold. He says they're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And and gold was the most valuable commodity in the ancient Near East. And he's saying it's, it's, it's more desirable than that. Psalm 119 uh, several times mentions or, or, or um, just compares the word of God to gold. Psalm 119.14, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 72, the law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 127, therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yes, even above fine gold. And then 162, I rejoice at thy word as one who finds great spoil. I mean, you get the idea of a treasure hunter here, don't you? Which I think is really described well in Proverbs by Solomon. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my son, if you'll receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you'll discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So Solomon was was exhorting his son to go on a treasure hunt, to make his life this great adventure of seeking and searching for God through his word as if he was on a treasure hunt, seeking some hidden treasure. So he treasured it. Number two, he tasted it. He tasted it. Showing showing us that God's word is enjoyable. And he, he, he extols the value of the scripture by comparing it not just to gold, but to honey. He said, it's sweeter also than a honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And, and, and the stuff that, that dripped out by itself, the drippings of the honeycomb, was the sweetest part. And he was saying there's, there's some that you kind of squeeze out or you get into yourself, but the stuff that just drips out by itself, that's the sweetest kind. And again, that was the sweetest substance known in the, the Near East was, was honey. Again, Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are thy words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then again, Solomon says something to his son along the same lines, Proverbs 24, verses 13 and 14. He says, my son, eat honey for it's good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. So he commends God and his word to his son. He says, eat it, son. It's good stuff. And so to David, meditating on the scripture was a source of great pleasure, great enrichment, and it meant more to him than the sweetest things in life. Job said in Job 23, 12, I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
In other words, I would rather read the Bible and study God's word than eat. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, Peter says, like newborn babes, what are you supposed to do? Long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, to have an appetite for God's word is a mark of a healthy, healthy Christian whose priorities are right. Do you have a hunger and an appetite for God's word? You're on the right track if you do. So David treasured God's word, he tasted God's word, and finally he trusted God's word. And he showed us that God's word is dependable. Verse 11, he says, Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In other words, there's a, there's a, there's a negative and a positive impact here in regards to trusting God's word. He says that the, the Bible warns us against the suicidal seductions of sin and, and all of its devastating consequences. And it, and it tips us off to the lies and the errors of the world. And it cautions us against the false teachers and against false teaching. And it alerts us to Satan and his deceptions and spiritual warfare. All this to keep us from sinning. It was John Bunyan who said about the Bible, he said, This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Have you found that to be true in your life? It's true in my life. And he says, in keeping them, there's great reward. So here's the positive side. That when we obey God's word and we do what it says, it brings great blessing and great reward. And he's not talking about temporal reward like you get rich. He's talking about spiritual rewards. That, that we have peace and we have rest and we have joy and we have happiness. Because we submit our lives to God's word. Again, John MacArthur says this, quote, there's no substitute for submission to scripture. Your spiritual health depends on placing the utmost value on the word of God and obeying it with an eager heart. So let me ask you this morning, do you treasure God's word? Do you taste God's word on a regular basis, on a daily basis at your daily food? Do you trust God's word? You know, in light of David's response to how wonderful the word of God is and how wonderful, uh, what wonderful things it does, I think it's sad to see how so many of us tend to take our Bibles for granted. I was talking about that with my kids this week in our little family worship time and we read the story of William Tyndale who was willing to give up his life, sacrifice his own life so that we could have a Bible in English. So we could read it ourselves. And we have to realize whenever we pick up this book that there was people in church history who were willing to die so that we could have this. And to them, there was nothing in the world more precious to them than God's Word. And their Bible was truly, their Bible was their most prized possession. In their entire life, you have a fire, your house catches on fire. What's the first thing you're going in for? To rescue, to save. You can have one thing. You only have time to get one thing. What are you going for? The family album? Right? The, 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 the whatever, the safe box? or They'd be going in for this. Because this was their most prized possession. Let me just share with you one more thing from the Puritans. We still got them in our mind, I hope from Don Kistler's time with us. But in Quest for Godliness, which is J.I. Packer's book about the Puritans, he talks about a guy named Thomas Goodwin who described an episode during his student years when he went to hear a certain Puritan preacher named Mr. Rogers. Don, I guess there is a Mr. Rogers out there somewhere. But his subject that morning was the Scriptures. And in his sermon, he talked to the congregation about their neglect of the Bible. And, he, and he, he kind of did a play act and he impersonated God. And this is what he said. He said, I've trusted you so long with my Bible. You've slighted it and it lies in your house is all covered with dust and cobwebs and you care not to listen to it and therefore you shall no longer have my Bible. And he acts as though he was taking their Bible and carrying it away. This is a sermon. And then he impersonated the people. 
and, and how they would respond. And, and he fell down on his knees crying and pleading out to God, Lord, whatever you do to us, take not your Bible from us, kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us your Bible. Don't take away your Bible. And again, he impersonated God's response. And he said, well, I'll try you a little while longer. Here's my Bible again. And I'll see how you'll use it, whether you'll love it more, observe it more, practice it more, and live more according to it. And Goodwin said that the entire congregation was just weeping and sobbing in the hearing of that sermon. In fact, he said that he was under such conviction that he hung around the neck of his horse for 15 minutes before he could get up on it. That's how he convicted he was by that message. And Packer points out, he says, this antidote takes us to the very heart of Puritanism. He said the congregation's reaction shows that that preacher was touching their conscience at its most sensitive point. He said, for Puritanism was above all else a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture. And serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect His written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to Him than to prize it and pour over it and then to live it out and give it out to others. He says, intense veneration for Scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. And I would pray and I would challenge us that it would also be the hallmark of this church and of our lives. That we would honor God by prizing His word and learning His word so that we could live His word and give out His word to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us, God, for how we trifle with it, for how we neglect it. Father, we should be under so much conviction this morning because of the way we have treated your word. It's so wonderful, it's so awesome. And I pray you teach us to treasure it and to taste it and to trust it, Father. And that it would dwell so richly in our lives that in every conversation we have, it just flows out. It's it's our every thought. It's our every word. It's our every motive. That we would just bleed Bible all the time. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.